today on Ag News Daily. You know, the majority of our genetic production right now, excuse me, is for uh, cannabinoid production. So CBD, CBG, CBN, things of that nature, those are individual cannabinoids. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here coming to you from Chicago and joined by Ms. Delaney Howell. Delaney, what is going on in your world? I am actually heading out to travel here after we cut the podcast today, heading to Maquoketa, Iowa, to speak to the Maquoketa Bankers customers at their annual customer appreciation event. Fantastic. Getting out there in eastern Iowa. It is Mm -hmm. beautiful country when you get out there, Delaney. It is. I'm hoping it's beautiful weather as well. Because we got some snow here in Des Moines this morning, so I'm hoping roads are agreeable and they didn't get too much snow over there. So we'll see. Yeah, you know, while we're speaking of weather, last night I had a chance to go out to dinner with with Ted Seifert and Matt Zayner. We went out with a group of South Dakota farmers. And I, I didn't realize this. I'm sure a lot of our listeners up north knew this already. But this shocked me. There still isn't a frost in the ground in South Dakota on the, in the third week hmm. of January. That is actually yeah, surprising. Said, I, I was blown away. They said they don't know what that's going to mean come springtime. You know, is the moisture going to, you know, continue to soak in? Or are they just going to have mm-hmm. completely, you know, swampy fields when, the, you know, things finally warm up enough to do some field work or get some crops in? This is kind of uncharted territory for that part of the country. Yeah, I'm wondering why they haven't had a frost. I mean, we've had some colder days, especially up there, I would we've think had- they have. Yes, and so I think the issue is that they've also had heavy snows, and so the snow is acting like a uh, blanket on the ah. ground, so when we get these colder days, it isn't, you know, uh, going all the way through. Interesting. All right. Yeah. So that was a, that was a news update from South Dakota, Delaney. What do you have from the broader world of agriculture? Well, I think we've all been waiting for this, and now we can officially announce that President Trump did sign the USMCA agreement as of today. And of course, it has to be taken up when ratified by Canada, which is expected to begin this afternoon, Wednesday afternoon. Their House of Commons is expected to pick it up this afternoon as as well as their Bodies Ways and Means Committee, but it's really unclear at this point, Mike, how long that process to ratify it is going to take. Okay. Yeah, I listeners, I know we've got some Canadians up there. If you have insights on what this process might look like, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, reach out to us. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily and help us get a feel for what this is going to look like in the Canadian Parliament. Because, Delaney, like you said, this is all uh, you know uncharted territory for me. Right. We do have some Canadian listeners, maybe Philip Shaw or a couple other, Matthew Pott, some of those guys. Maybe they can help us out. Yes, yes. We will have to get on the horn and figure some things out. But, Delaney, I've got two stories that are tied together. Okay. Uh, The theme for these two stories is fake meat. Um, First, here in the U.S., uh, KFC, I should say, has announced they are going to sell Beyond Meat's plant-based fried chicken, and I'm using air quotes as I say fried chicken, in the southern U.S. This was floated as an idea, oh gosh, a few months ago, and now it appears they are moving forward. Uh, They announced today that they are going to supply plant-based, air quotes, fried chicken to several KFC stores in Tennessee and North Carolina, and they believe that consumer demand is going to be strong enough 
to carry this thing through. So we will see what this means. Um, basically, this product that Beyond Meat is selling looks like a fried chicken nugget. Uh, so that's kind of mm. what they're saying. It's not going to be a wing or a, you know, a breast or anything. It's basically a, a nugget. That's what's coming to KFC. The other story I have takes a look over across the Pacific at uh, Singapore, in fact. There is a company in Singapore, and I'm going to mispronounce it probably, but it looks like Shiok Meats, and they are working very, very uh, diligently to create lab-grown meat, specifically lab-grown shrimp hmm. to people's plates. Now, this I thought was interesting okay. because we've talked quite a bit in this country about you know lab-grown beef and pork. I haven't heard anything about fish, and now this country, this company is out there giving it a shot. Um, it, you know, they would be a rival of Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, but probably more in that Memphis meats, uh, you know, lab-grown meat sphere. But they are um, basically getting it started. We don't know kind of a timeline for when this is going to be commercially viable, um, but they do say next year they are going to launch this product and begin, you know, I guess consumer testing. I think I feel less... Well, I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for. Less disgusted, I guess, by lab-grown shrimp as opposed to, like, lab-grown beef. Cause oh, I feel really? Like, That's interesting. Well, okay, because I, when I'm thinking about it, I mean, I've done a lot of research and stories on, like, Vietnamese catfish and the way that they raise their fish and products over there. And I feel like they don't use the cleanest facilities. A lot of it is coming from groundwater streams instead of like commercial greenhouses or ponds so i'm feeling like maybe for china that might be a safer food source interesting well there you go delaney we learn something every time you're on mm -hmm. um what other news do you have for us what else can you teach us delaney Howell? <laughs> well we know that Secretary Purdue is just wrapping up a week of meetings in Europe, and he's traveled all over the EU trade bloc discussing trade, of course, as a number one commitment and priority there, but also just looking at agricultural systems over there, discussing how we can move forward on some sort of EU-US trade agreement. It seems like from what he's noticed and sensed, it's going to be a big deal to overcome a couple big issues such as sanitary and phytosanitary standards, as well as those geographical indicators for cheese and wine and some of those other products. He thinks that could be really the big holdup here as we continue forward with some sort of U.S., EU, you know, small or phase one type of trade deal. So it's going to appear that we're going to have to address some of those GI the, the geographical indicators here at some point in the near future to really move forward on a trade deal. Interesting. So the other alternative would be leave agriculture out of a trade deal altogether right. and do a phase one without ag, I suppose. Yep, that would be right. Mm. All right. Well, stay tuned. You know, that I think, Delaney, you mentioned that's where our focus is going to go now that China and Japan mm -hmm. and the USMCA are done. Well, and the other big market that I think is actually, I agree, is a completely untapped market for us so far has been India. And we've talked a little bit about it on the podcast before. It's a huge country, about 1.3 billion people. Um, Representative Lighthizer is heading to India next month to begin kind of some under 
or uh, excuse me, informal trade talks between the U.S. and India to put together a free trade agreement. So we know that Brazil's been sniffing around over there as well. I'm not sure about Argentina, but definitely kind of looking at India as really the next China, so to speak. Absolutely. You know, you got to go where there's population and where there's growing wealth. And yeah, India fits that bill, though a lot is uncertain looking at the future. Yes, indeed. Well, Delaney, I'll be honest, I'm all out of news. Should we turn to the markets or do you have more stories for us? Well, I have, I guess, two other quick updates here. There, def- This one is definitely news related. Looking at the coronavirus, I was doing a little more digging so far this morning popped up in my one of my newsletters I subscribe to each day, and it shared that China in particular, as you and I mentioned on the podcast yesterday, Mike, is really the country that's been affected the most by this as of yet. And it appears that about 56 million people across China are on lockdown and not allowed to leave their homes or their areas. Tourism is also closed off to China. And as you mentioned yesterday, the Lunar New Year is not happening, which was supposed to be in last Saturday, one of their busiest, best holidays for shopping, eating, traveling, etc. That's not happening because of the coronavirus. And what's more noteworthy, I thought here, was if you zoom out, you look ahead to about March is the timeline that they're giving. We've already seen China's economy slipping because of the tariff and trade wars. But according to Morning Brew's latest study, If we don't see the coronavirus wrapped up by about March, their GDP in China could slip below the 6% mark, which is kind of where we see that their growth is year over year. That 6% is usually a benchmark to show their growth in GDP. Okay. So, gosh, we're in crunch time here. They got to get a vaccine. They got to get that thing under control soon. It sounds like it. I don't really understand. Like, what are the symptoms of coronavirus? Um, Basically, one of the challenges from my understanding in getting this thing diagnosed is the symptoms are very similar to the flu Mm -hmm. and pneumonia. So it it kind of blends into the background. And, uh, you know, it's really, I guess, dangerous to children and elderly. If you've got a healthy immune system, you know, you're going to treat it like the flu is is my understanding. Folks, if we've got any doctors or epidemiologists (laughs) or whatever tuning in, Feel free to, to write us and fix my thoughts, but I've read this. Um, basically, it's the other uh, – it's folks with weakened immune systems that can be you know, taken down by gotcha. this uh, coronavirus. That makes sense. Yeah, but, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely spreading. That's the thing that we do know for sure. We don't know exact numbers, but uh, confirmed cases in China continue mm-hmm. to grow. That they do. Well, Delaney, does that wrap up your news for today? I think it does, Mike. Well, we've got some more weakness in the grain market today, but not as bad as it was on Monday. Taking a look at corn, March contract down two and a quarter cents to close the day at three eighty-four and a quarter. The May down two and a half, finishing at three eighty-nine and a half. Over in soybeans, the March lower by two cents today, closing at eight ninety-three. Even the May also down two cents, closing at nine oh seven. Wheat down by more than the other two grain markets. March down, March Chicago rather down. Seven and a half cents, finishing at five sixty-two and a quarter. The May down seven and a quarter, closing at five sixty-one and a quarter. Jumping over to the world of livestock, weakness in live cattle and feeder cattle. The April live cattle contract dropped forty-seven and a half cents, closing at one twenty twenty-two fifty. June down forty-seven fifty, closing at one twelve even. In feeder cattle, the March contract. 
lower by 42.5 cents, wrapping up the day at 134.97 half. April down 70 cents, closing at 137.0750. Lean hogs down by a substantial margin today. The February contract dropped a dollar ninety-two half, closing at sixty-four thirty. April down two forty-seven fifty to wrap the day at sixty-eight eighty-two and a half. Can't forget about our friends in the dairy industry, and we've got green on the screen in Class Three milk. The January contract up two cents, closing at seventeen oh six. February up twenty-four today, closing at seventeen sixty-three. Without further ado, we're going to kick it over to a conversation Delaney had at the Iowa Power Farming Show with James Bennett, a Colorado hemp grower. Checking out the Iowa Power Farming Show, catching up with James Bennett, who is a presenter here at the show, as well as a hemp producer of Yemen Farms. James, tell me a little bit about your background in agriculture and how you got into hemp production. Hi, Delaney. My name is James Bennett. I own Yeoman Farmers Brand out in northeastern Colorado. Um, We're uh, a pretty large farm out there with uh, livestock production. We've got cattle and swine and, uh, you know, grass hay production as well as um, organic uh, vegetable and cannabis industrial hemp production area. Uh, I'm a seed breeder, so we're a licensed farmer seed labeler producer, uh, do genetics research on industrial hemp, things of that nature. And then uh, we also, you know, we sell seed and propagule nationwide. There's a lot of moving pieces then to obviously your operation, but just the hemp industry in general. How did you find the right resources, find the right people to talk to when you were getting your foot into the door there? Uh, We've been involved in this industry for quite a few years. Being in Colorado, um, naturally I was around it in um, early 2012 with legalization of uh, cannabis medical consumption. I was a registered licensed caregiver at that time, helping provide medicine for around 3,000 patients um, in Colorado, which then led to recreational legalization and then industrial hemp. Um, at that point, um, we started focusing on industrial hemp, which is more the commodity side of things because we're a larger scale producer. And so the uses of industrial hemp, there's a lot of things. I mean, I think a lot of times we are thinking CBD or textiles, but there's a lot of other uses, including livestock feed, food for humans, etc. Um, what do you guys use your feed for, obvi- or your, use your hemp for? Obviously, you said that you guys do some seeds and some genetics, but what are you using that final plant for? You know, the majority of our genetic production right now, <clears throat> excuse me, is for uh, cannabinoid production. So CBD, CBG, CBN, things of that nature, those are individual cannabinoids, and that's we breed to uh, for a high potency of cannabinoids. Um, it, while remaining THC compliant, so um, that's the goal with industrial hemp. So, um, you know, it, it's the stuff that you wouldn't make any friends with, you know, if you took it to the party. So, um, you know, we that's that's the goal right now is cannabinoid production. We also work with fiber lines and stuff, too. Uh, the industry has really not developed greatly yet at this point, but at, at some time here we'll have enough resources to where the industry will be developed and we'll be able to release, you know, uh, two meter single strand plus fiber lines that will be valuable for, you know, plastics and things of that nature. Yeah, and that's the thing is we're still kind of waiting on USDA and the states to decide regulation-wise. We're also waiting on on really just you know, inputs and accept, and things like that. Um, input costs in particular have been one that I've heard have been kind of expensive for producers. I've heard one guy that said he spent a dollar on a seed 
and he was seeding at about five to seven thousand seeds per acre. So they're, you know, five to seven thousand dollars in just the seed cost alone. Do you think that market is going to be developed here over the next couple of years for those input costs to make those a little cheaper for farmers to start? Yeah, you know, uh, farming is always a matter of economics. We're trying to get our costs and overhead down, uh, you know, everything from seed costs and input costs to machinery costs down as low as we can and create a better margin. Um, I've seen input costs with industrial hemp uh, as low as $3,500 an acre and as high as $25,000 an acre. You know, our our costs are dialed down there about as low as I can get them at around $3,500. Uh, yes, average cost for a good quality CBD uh, cannabinoid producing genetic is a dollar a seed. CBG seeds might be 4 to $10 per seed. Uh, fiber seeds might be nine cents a pound for seed. Um, it just kind of really depends on what the f- initial strategy is moving forward uh, on your individual farm, what you want to try to do. So you mentioned CBD, CBG, and fiber seeds. Are those three different types of basically end product that you're doing with that hemp? Yeah, you know, the CBD and CBG would be cannabinoid production genetics. Um, That would be a smaller shrubby plant. The fiber line would be a tall, single-stemmed, you know, rapid-growing fiber line, Uh, maybe uh, a regular seed with uh, dual purpose. It might have a small amount of cannabinoids in it for extraction. It might have seeds at the top of the flower for a seed oil production or hemp heart, things of that nature. Okay, interesting. So the other big thing that a lot of people had questions about today was the licensing process. So as I understand it, everybody has to have a license. They have to apply for a license to be able to grow hemp, but it doesn't sound like that process is a short one by any means. No, I mean, it's a relatively intimidating process the first few times, but it's it's not overly complicated once um, you get kind of dialed in, especially if you continue to grow the same acreage a couple years in a row. You know, you, you've already got your GPS mapping done, things like that, and it makes it um, a lot easier the next second or third year, that's for sure. So what does the testing process look like then? Uh, you know, testing is going to be done through a couple different pieces of scientific equipment, a high-performance gas chromatographer or a liquid chromatographer. Um, they test in two different ways. Uh, it's really nothing more than shooting a, a sample um, into the machine and waiting for a, a result, a chromatogram result. Um, it's something that, uh, you know, there's there's not a lot of labs around, so producers need to be finding a testing lab that they can get in good graces with and be able to send samples and have results back rapidly so they know where their crop's at and what's going on. And with your line, your genetics line, you have a testing lab as well. What are you doing to develop the genetic side of hemp? Well, we constantly um, isolate the outliers within the crop that um, show us some type of value. That value might be uh, higher cannabinoid potency. It might be a resistance or resilience to pests, mold, mildews. Uh, it might be a drought tolerant um, cultivar, or it may be a frost resistant cultivar. Okay, so you're doing a lot of R&D, it sounds like, on on the back end. Why is there such a need for doing that across? I mean, could I not grow the same hemp plant in Iowa as I could in Colorado or Kentucky? You know, 
you, you can, you may have different results because it will be developed in a different microclimate, um, you know, slightly different results. The ideal goal is to create cultivars that are inbred lines that are very, very stable and look consistent throughout the field. When you look across the top of a crop, you want to see everything to be very, very consistent um, and not have a lot of different phenotypes within the cultivar. And another question that was asked today that I thought was a great one to make sure and ask you as well was, I think a lot of folks, especially here in the Midwest, are thinking that perhaps hemp would be a crop that they could plant on rotation with corn, soybeans, wheat, etc. But it doesn't sound like maybe that's quite as easy of a process as just growing one thing one year and uh, hemp the next year. You know, hemp is, um, it's a scavenger and it's it's really close to um, about one of the best black holes that we have on earth. It's going to remediate everything that's in the ground. That might be lead or, uh, you know, organic radiation, uranium, heavy metals, um, glyphosate. It's going to pull it up. And, you know, that's not necessarily a concern if it's growing into a fiber line that's going to be in uh, plastics. But now if it's uh, a product that's going to be used for human consumption or livestock, then certainly we don't want that in an end-use product. That makes sense. Uh, James, the last question I have for you is, obviously, this is uh, pretty new here. We've seen it finalized or legalized in the 2018 Farm Bill. So a lot of producers are ready to kind of dip their toes in the water. What advice do you have for those folks looking to start hemp production on their operations? My best advice would be to take things very slowly, um, commit to a smaller acreage rather than a larger one. Don't let your ego um, get control over, you know, what you're doing because we're, a lot of us are very used to growing comfort crops, meaning corn, wheat, soy, alfalfa, things like that, that um, are very uh, easy for us to grow. This is not that way. This is more like uh, breaking a wild Mustang. It's a very, very inconsistent crop to grow. It takes a lot of, uh, very, very labor intensive. So, do it very slowly, proceed slowly and cautiously, and make certain that you have a very, very dialed-in strategy all the way to the end of the market chain. Um, we don't want to end up with what I like to call the 10,000 seller, and that's when you have 10,000 or something sitting in your cellar at the end of the season that you can't get rid of. So make a good plan and you know, ideally hire a consultant that can help you compress the learning curve about the crop and uh, go out there and take a run at it. There's been a lot of people who've made quite a bit of money at it. Awesome. James Bennett, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Delaney. Appreciate it. Well, again, a big thank you there to James. A lot of moving parts when you think about the hemp industry, Mike. It was interesting. I didn't really realize, I mean, I knew that you had to be licensed to sell hemp or grow hemp, but I didn't realize there were so many moving pieces. Yeah, you know, I think with the newness of it all, you know, we're still trying to wrap our heads around it. And uh, it's great to see growers getting out there and being aggressive in figuring it all out and putting it to work. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to take a lot of work. You definitely have to do some research and digging around before you just willy-nilly start it on your operation. Yeah, don't rush out there and start uh, planting ditchweed in all of your pastures. <laughs> no. Well, listeners, you can always tune in for our fantastic insights and market outlook and everything happening in agriculture by visiting our website at agnewsdaily.com, and we'd love to interact with you on social media. Uh, give us a shout. Uh, you can find us at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and uh, give us a follow. Let us know what's going on in your world. With that, Delaney, should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 